I hope you'll take a Bible and open it to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, uh, as we look again at this passage. Matthew, chapter 22, where Christ gives what's called the greatest commandment. I'll begin reading in verse 34 of of Matthew chapter 22. Hear God's word. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. That ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. We are spending a few weeks looking at purposes of our church. Last week we looked at uh, what does it mean to love God. And today we'll look at the second part of this passage, which is to love others. It tells us that... uh, Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. That was a a group of a religious elite that did not believe in a resurrection of the dead. And they had asked a hypothetical question, and Jesus had answered them, gave them more of an answer than they wanted. The Pharisees were another group, and they, they exalted the law, all of the specific applications of God's law externally, that the way a person would be right with God was to obey all these laws. So they discussed the law a lot. So it was not too much of a surprise when they, through this expert, put forth a question to trap him, to make Jesus say something that he would regret, that the crowds would turn against him, something they could use against him. But in answering their question, which is the greatest commandment, he quotes from the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 5, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And he goes on and says, this is the highest. In other words, this is the most important commandment. If you'll remember, just by way of review, if you were here last week, I, I said that the Ten Commandments are divided into two sections. The first four commandments deal with primarily with our relationship with God. And then the last six deal with our relationships with one another. What Jesus is doing is is summarizing those first four commandments with this command, love God with your heart, soul, and mind. And then he summarizes the last six with this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I said last week it is impossible for us to love God the way this describes. And that goes back to the issue with our great-great-grandparents, Adam and Eve. That God had created them, they had life with him, they had a perfect relationship with him, they were alive spiritually, but they disobeyed him. And as a result, they died spiritually. We are born spiritually dead, and we commit sins against God. We miss his mark of perfection. We've committed crimes against him, and he says he must punish those, and the punishment is death. Now, it's just natural, it seems, among us all that we think, well, if there is a God and he does have standards, then somehow or another I can appease his standards by living a good life or being religious to whatever religious code I believe, living by some standard like the golden rule. If I do that, God will see that. He'll know the intent of my heart, and therefore that will overcome my sin. And yet we have these problems of sin and death, and we cannot do enough good things to overcome those two problems that God is righteous and he must punish sin. 
Thankfully, also in his love, he sent God the Son, Jesus, who came and lived a perfect life, who always obeyed him, who never sinned, uh, and he allowed himself to be arrested and, and uh, put upon a cross. And on the cross, God took my sin, the sin that I had committed, and he put that on Jesus, and he punished him in my place. In the inquirer's class this, this morning, I was, I was mentioning to that group that this is a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies with the sacrificial system where they would gather on the Day of Atonement once a year and an animal would be sacrificed for the sins of the people. And even a child watching this would know the animal died so that I can live. The animal died for my sin so that I can live. Well, Jesus died on the cross. God put my sin on him and punished him in my place. Then he rose from the grave. He appeared to many people over a period of 40 days, and the last command he gave them was to go into all the world and tell people what God had done. So we must believe that. And believing in Christ means that I see my problem, you see your problem of sin and death, that you've committed sins against God, that he must punish those with death, and that Jesus was God's son who kept the law, who, kept, who obeyed God in every respect, and that when he died, he died in your place as your substitute. And now you turn toward him, you turn from yourself, and you turn toward him, asking him now to make you the person he wants you to be. That's what's involved in becoming a Christian, technically. That's coming to faith. That's receiving Christ through faith and repentance. Now, when that happens, once that happens, from that point on, God, through his Holy Spirit, empowers us to begin to love him the way this describes. He also empowers us to begin to love other people. And so let's look at the second part today, the second uh, command, you might say, that, that he said was the greatest, and that's verse 39. Um, love your neighbor as yourself. We know from other places in the Bible as far as who is my neighbor? Is the neighbor just the one who lives next door to my house or my apartment? We know from the Bible and other explanations that it's anyone in your life who has a need. That's your neighbor. Anyone in your life with whom you have contact, who has a need. That's the, a basic biblical definition of a neighbor. Now, to what extent are you and I to love others, to love our neighbors? We're told to love God with our heart, soul, and mind, but it doesn't have that standard for loving others. We are to love them as we love ourselves. Well, how do you love yourself? As, as Matthew Henry said, this implies that you do and that you should love yourself. Now, an enormous amount of ink has been spilled on this one phrase about you, if you can't love others till you learn to love yourself. Others say, no, it assumes we love ourselves. Here's from reviewing a lot of that this week. Let me tell you my observations. There is very much an improper, sinful self-love that's arrogant, that's self-centeredness, that's self-sufficient, that is pride. We are told in Scripture to put that away, to set that aside. So he's obviously not telling us to live just a self-centered life. That is not what this means. So how then should we love ourselves in the way that we love others? Well, we need an accurate biblical self-image. The world today just tears us down. It's such a discouraging time, you might say, to be alive. It's so discouraging because everything comes at us, especially in our culture, that only some people are valuable and others are not. 
And that value is measured by how you look or your possessions, sometimes your education or your career. And we use that criteria not only to determine the worth of others, but even our own worth. And typically, we are found lacking. And we do it to ourselves as well, not just the world around us, but even the way we talk to ourselves. We look in the mirror and we see someone who disappoints us. It's pretty bad when the first person you see in the morning is a major disappointment in your life, and it's you. You struggle perhaps with your own first uh, physical appearance. It's not what you wish. Perhaps you have difficulty with your own personality or your emotional makeup. Some struggle with hereditary factors over which you have no control. And we learn to hate our own failures, and then we end up hating ourselves if we're not careful. And we can lose sense of the own worth and value that we have in God's sight because he's made us in his image. And many people, many people just feel that every day is adversity. And it's not from outside circumstances, it's from who they are from who you are, and you think about that. Well, you need to go to Psalm 139. If that's the case, you need to have a proper biblical self-image that God made you, that regardless of the circumstances of your birth or your parents or whatever, all that, that God's hand was in that, and you are unique by his design. I agree with Sinclair Ferguson. I could not find this, but I heard him say it. He said, I could not find it in a book, but he said, most of us suffer from poor self-images and inflated egos at the same time. Poor self-images and inflated egos at the same time. But I do believe this passage, back to Matthew 22, assumes that you love yourself. And it assumes that I love myself. And what it means, that assumption, that type of love, is that you are the one who is primarily attentive to your own welfare. You love yourself each day by taking care of yourself. You protect yourself. You make sure you have enough to eat and to drink. You look out. You you look both ways before you cross the street. You look in the mirror and you take care of what you see. Who tends to you if you are sick? Well, you do. Who tends to you first if you are tired? You do. And so with that same attentiveness, with that same way in which we all love ourselves, we are to love others. Now, how do we do that? Do you do that? Do you think about others first, even before yourself, all the time? Of course not. You don't. I don't know anyone that does. But God can give us changed perspectives toward others. It all starts with how we view other people. First, how we view ourselves, that I'm made in the image of God. God has a purpose for me. The same for all others that I see. I told you a number of I've told you a while back about my friend Fred Harrell. Fred's a pastor in San Francisco, but he and I were campus ministers with our denomination at the same time a number of years back. He was at the University of Tennessee uh, while I, I, was, I was here. And uh, he, I heard him tell about speaking one summer at Alpine Camp for Boys, if you're familiar with Camp Alpine in northeast Alabama. He was there as, uh, to, to do devotionals and to teach the Bible to the college uh, counselors that were working there. I think he said he'd been there all week, maybe even two weeks, and he'd been separated from his wife and his, his young children at that time. And every morning he would preach at 7 a.m. and then again in the evening, and he said he was exhausted. At the end of the week he was exhausted, he was tired, he wanted to be with his family. They were in Augusta. 
So he was to meet up with them on a Saturday. The plan was for Fred to be taken, driven to Atlanta, put on a Greyhound bus that was going to take him to Augusta to meet his family. And he said his plan was to sleep on that bus. He was tired. He didn't want to interact with anybody. He didn't want to talk. So he said he got on the bus, and there was almost no one on it. He went almost to the back, sat by the window, put, opened his briefcase next to him, opened it up, spread papers around, made it look. He said, it's like I had a sign saying, leave me alone, leave me alone. He said, my plan was to read a couple of paragraphs of a book and then sleep the rest of the way to Augusta. He said, just about the time that the door shut on the bus for them to leave, there was a knock and it was a cane and a woman was tapping on the steps. And he said, the door opened up and a woman, a very large woman, got onto the bus and began to walk with her seeing eye dog down the aisle. He said he watched as she came past not only seats, entire sections of empty rows just to arrive next to him and saying, is anyone seated here? And he said, oh, oh, no, 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 here, have a seat. And so he said, I was stuffing my briefcase under my seat and she's stuffing her Labrador retriever under her seat. And then he said, uh, he said, he said, God has quite a sense of humor, didn't he? He said, for the next two hours... I heard her tell me about her life. She began to tell me, he said, about where she was raised in Sparta, Georgia, and how she had lost a number of siblings to a flu epidemic when she was a child, which had come through her impoverished town, and how a white doctor from Atlanta heard about their plight, and he came over to Sparta on his own time and expense, and he administered money and medicine and care, which they needed to stop the uh, epidemic. And she was so grateful because all she lost was her sight. So now, she said, every three weeks, she and her two remaining siblings rotate going to Sparta to take care of their invalid parents. And Fred said, then she turned to me after a while and said, what do you do for a living? He said, oh, me? I'm a minister. And she said, is that right? She said, you know what my Bible tells me? It tells me that whenever I take care of my mother and father or anybody else, that I'm actually serving my Lord Jesus Christ. He said about that time the bus pulled up to Sparta and it stopped and it was time for her to get off. So she's struggling to get all of her gear together and her dog. And he said she turned right before she walked down the aisle and said, what's your name? And he said, my name's Fred Harrell. And she reached out her hand and said, well, Reverend Harrell, I reckon I'll be seeing you in heaven. And off she went. And he said, I got on that bus, and I didn't want anything to do with anybody, including her. He said, but God in his providence allowed me for two hours to sit next to greatness. How do you view people in your life? A few minutes ago, we took up the offering. You may or may not have even noticed the offering plates. Right now, I mean, if you could, could you tell me what they looked like? Were they wood? Were they, were they silver? Were they chrome? What, what? We don't notice. But what if before the offering, I said, we've got something special today. We've been entrusted with some gold offering plates that were found off of Key West. They were recovered from a sunken ship from the 1700s. They're worth millions of do uh, dollars. They're ultimately headed to, uh, uh, to the Smithsonian Institute, but we're going to use them for the next month to take up the offering. You think that would affect how you treated those things as you passed them down the aisle? C.S. Lewis talked about the eternal weight of beings, that we do not rub shoulders with normal creatures. We rub shoulders every day with people that are going to live for eternity, with God or apart from him. 
And so loving others begins with how we see people. And it goes on as we think about this and loving others. We, we have to think in concentric circles. We, we see in the New Testament that we have a commitment, a love that we're to give to family as a priority, and then other believers to the church body, local and worldwide, and then to all people. So there is, in a sense, a priority, family, church, others. So we know that we are to give particular attention to caring for and loving others of the faith. So we choose to belong. That means we need to find a local church. Now, I know many of you here are college students and, or you're grad students or whatever, and that's a transitional period of life, I understand. That may not be the time to settle into a church. But when you are settled down, you need a church you can be part of on a regular basis. Romans 12 uses the term members. It says, In Christ we who are many form one body. There's a picture of the body of Christ on earth, and each member belongs to all the others. We're a generation who do not like commitments. Uh, We don't like to join things, to become members of things. We like a little bit of involvement, and I'll come and go, and let me just do a little bit. But it may be be a surprise to you to learn that the word member is a biblical term. That's where it comes from. It comes right out of the Bible, to be a member of the body of Christ, just like your hand or your foot or, or your head is a member of the body. That's where that term membership comes from. But in the church, we're not talking about joining a a silly club. We're talking about an eternal family, to be a member, a part of that. So if you want to grow, you need to be part of a local church uh, when you're at a place to to do that. Also, we love others by sharing. We read through the, the book of Acts. We see in the early church how they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. What do we share when we're together? Well, we share experiences. We remember that Proverbs says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. We learn from one another. Have you ever heard the phrase, it's wise to learn from experience? It's wi- I, I would add, it's wiser to learn from the experience of others to learn from others' mistakes. I believe when you pay someone to teach you like a a lesson, a tennis lesson, a golf lesson, or a musical piano lesson, in a sense, you are paying that person to compress years of trial and error down to a matter of moments, a matter of minutes, 30 minutes or an hour. And so we learn, I can learn from that person's mistakes. Well, when we share, we we talk openly and we, we learn from one another. Think of the wisdom that would be represented in this room from a variety of life experiences, good ones, hard ones, tough ones, celebratory times, joyful times. If we had the time to sit and listen to the experiences that God has given to us, just from like our brother Gary said uh, of what he's seeing happen in, in Thailand recently, and these 40 people baptized at great cost to themselves, Uh, to be part of Christ's local church and eternal church. We share our homes. We practice hospitality. Do you realize in the first almost 300 years of of, uh, the first three centuries after the resurrection of Christ, there were no church buildings, none. Uh, Churches gathered in, in public buildings and in homes, or outside in park-type places and things like that. And that, we look back, is probably the fastest-growing period of the church. 
Now, there's nothing wrong, obviously, with church buildings. And a lot is, a lot is the culture in the, in the country and the places where you are. It's good to have something like that so that it can be used. Uh, and yet, that doesn't make fellowship happen. We need to, to be with people in our homes and to invite people in and to share such things. We share our problems. Galatians says we are to bear one another's burdens. God never intended you to face your problems alone. He did not intend that. And sometimes it can just be helpful to tell another person, a trusted friend that you know can keep confidences, let me just tell you what I'm facing. And, and you don't even necessarily want their opinion or their advice, so to speak, but you just want them to listen. And you can do the same for another. Somebody said, I forgot who it was, when you share a joy, it is doubled. And when you share a problem, it's cut in half. There's something that God uses just to give relief and peace to talk to another person sometimes, to verbalize the problem and to maybe ask, do you think I'm approaching this right? Do you have any suggestions for me or any, what am I missing here? When the Bible says weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, how can we do that if we don't know what's happening with one another? And so part of loving one another is, is sharing our burdens and joys with one another. We also love others in the church by doing our part in the body. Ephesians 4 describe, takes that analogy of the body of Christ again, and it says, From him, from Jesus, the whole body, joined and held together, by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love, as each part does its work. Each part, that means each person, each member of the body. We all have a task to do. We all have a job to perform. We all have a contribution to make. Every one of us here in, in various areas of service. Do you know that 58 times in the New Testament we are told to do things toward one another? Such things as serve one another, love one another, pray for one another. We're even told to put up with one another as we do these things. Now that's how it works. That's love in action. It's not just words, but it's doing our part, serving. I was reading one of Jerry Bridges' books uh, the other night, and he, uh, he told how he had served with a mission organization and finally realized one day that his area of service was to be an administrative missionary. He wasn't a frontline evangelist. And he talked about how difficult that was when he faced the reality that that was really the way God had made him. And that's where he was most effective. He wanted to be doing something else. But God had him, in a sense, rather than being on the front lines, he was kind of back in the kitchen. He was in the mess hall. And he had to, he, that was part of his growing process in trusting Christ, was to realize that's where he could be most effective. I'll leave you with these words from John 15. Jesus said, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. How many of you have been on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham? Many of you have been here? All right, several. If you, ever, if you ever just happen to be passing through that part of Birmingham, it's worth just driving in there to see how beautiful that campus is. And so up on the high hill and so forth. Well, uh, my family, we've been over there a few times because they have a, a, a fantastic pastor's conference each summer. At, their, at the Beeson Divinity School on the same campus. Well, a few years ago, we were there, and Barbara and I were uh, out one afternoon, and we were pushing Stephen in a stroller, and I you know, noticed all these, uh, these stones. That they're like memorial stones, and it would be like 
dedicated to so-and-so who graduated from here and then went on to become like this congressman or congresswoman or something like that. And it's fascinating. You don't see things like that too often on college campuses. And, and if you're ever over there, I want you to look for this one. This was a surprise. In memoriam, Harry. This marker honors the memory of Harry, college janitor and servant of President Talbert. At midnight on October the 15th, 1854, he sustained fatal injuries as he roused sleeping students from the burning college building in Marion, Alabama. Alarmed by flames and warned to escape for his life, he replied, I must wake the boys first. And thus he saved many lives at the cost of his own. John 15:13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. Do you know that love of Christ, that real love of Christ today? That's where you put your trust, and that he died for you, and that God gives you new life through him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your love that is slightly reflected in us as we seek to follow you, that gives us an empowerment to begin to love you with our heart, soul, and mind, and to begin to love others as we love ourselves. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to take your uh, bulletin and turn on the back to the song we began.